Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Good morning, Sue. Hey, good morning, Andrew. I am so excited to be talking with you today because I've been feeling really nostalgic. Oh, and you're part of my nostalgia, actually. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> For sure. I've, more and more, I think, as we progress in our lives. But I was thinking, what, what year was it that you and I met? Do you remember? 85. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 85. Western Massachusetts, mm-hmm. UMass Amherst. Yeah. And what what happened, I think some of my listeners know this, but... In 88, I moved from the East Coast to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and a year later, I started in grad school, and um, I was at UCLA in the School of Social Work, and my grad school graduation, I can't believe I'm saying this, was (laughs) 30 years ago this month. Wow. 30 years. I know. I mean... That must mean I was like seven or eight. When you were I, a child prodigy. I was a child so prodigy smart. for sure. Exactly. Going with all those social work issues. That's right. When I was like a, a toddler. But seriously, I, I, I think that the nostalgia partially is that I was younger then. And so much has happened in these three decades that I, I felt compelled to to focus in this podcast about what these 30 years have meant to me professionally and personally. Why do you think that? I I think that I, in general, I tend to be sentimental. And, um, and I think that at this point in in my life, I, I just feel so grateful. You know, I feel incredibly grateful to UCLA number one for admitting me and, um, and providing a really strong, uh, social work program, and, and then my my fellow students were awesome. Mm-hmm. There were seventy five of us, by the way, oh, okay. and we all entered and ended together. Yeah. I think actually sixty two of us graduated, but whatever it was, right, yeah. we we started and ended together, which is kind of a rare thing in it's grad strong, school. Strong cohort, yeah. exactly. And, and then of course, I I, I had fantastic. Um, structure given to me by UCLA. I had really good professors, amazing internships, which as a social worker is so important. And it really laid the foundation for my my clinical life. So have you always been in private practice since you graduated UCLA? You know, a lot of people think that I just popped out of grad school and went right in private practice. The, the truth is that I, I did work part-time in private practice starting in 92, mm-hmm. but I, I worked in various hospitals. 
an agency from 91 actually to 2003. So I was in part-time practice from 92 to 2003, and then I went into full-time practice. I took the leap of faith in 2003 and have been in full-time practice since that time. So, of course, I've known you all of this time, and I remember you being really enthused about coaching, and that really seemed like a more prominent focus for you. What happened around that? Well, it's interesting because coaching and positive psychology still have a very significant place in my heart and is something that I believe in strongly. What what actually happened, just to backtrack a little bit, is in the 90s, I was really burning the candle at both ends. You know, I was getting my license. I was doing a lot of training. I was not making a whole lot of money. And it was a time where I, I was working really hard and um, actually feeling a bit burnt out by the end of the 90s. And I, I saw this flyer, literally a flyer about this coaching CEU class and, you know, I needed the CEUs and it was actually walking distance from home, which rarely happens. So I, I walked to this class and it was a one day, six hour class given by a, a gentleman named Jeff Auerbach, who um, has a coaching program called the College of Executive Coaching. And I just gravitated to it. You know, mm -hmm. Jeff is very bright. He's a psychologist who now focuses solely on coaching and positive psychology. And he said to me, you know, Andrew, if you, if you like today's class, why don't you try this other one? I think you'll really gravitate towards this one as well. So I actually drove, believe it or not, I drove from LA down to Orange County. Mm -hmm. And which I don't usually do for a CEU class, but I figured if Jeff recommended it, why not? So I went down there and there was this coach giving this class called Peak Performance. And I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I sat there for, for this entire day in, in some you know hotel conference room kind of thing. And um, the teacher, her name was Sam Foster, Sandra Foster, actually Dr. Foster. And from the moment I heard her talk about peak performance, I was enamored with what she had to say. Mm. She was such a good teacher and she was so inspired by what she was teaching that it was contagious. And make a long story short, I went through the entire coach training program, which for me was 18 months. And I also um, worked with co with Sam as my coach because we needed to be coached in order to complete the requirements for the, the coach training. And it was fantastic. I, I just was so taken with who she was and how she coached me. And, mm -hmm. and I was really looking for something at the time to feel less burnt out. And sure enough, it was really at the time a very inspirational and enthusiastic um, experience. Mm. So much different than what you were doing on the side. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I, I don't want to compare, but I will talk a little bit for a moment about what my original training is. So I, I was trained mostly in psychodynamic work and family systems work. 
with a little bit of attachment theory mixed in, object relations, which most of those things are based on deficits. Really, they're all deficit theories. And what's cool about coaching is it focuses on one strength, it focuses on the future, it focuses on goals and purpose and milestones and yeah yeah reaching things yeah gonna help you exactly exactly and and you know marty seligman who's the founder of positive psychology he's the first one to say that it's not like one replaces the other i mean his work his background was on learned helplessness and depression but he really was the one who sparked the international excitement around positive psychology. And so what I can say about that is, uh, long story short, is that I I did immerse myself in how coaching could benefit mostly those in recovery, various kinds of addiction recovery, for several years. And I I did workshops, and I um, did a lot of writing, and I I gave a few presentations, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. What happened, though, which is part of life, of course, is that I had another U-turn when I ended up going into this somatic experiencing training. So as some people know, I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner, and I'm also a brain spotting practitioner. So I, I did this detour into somatic work because I saw a lot of my colleagues just changing personally and and how they worked in their practice. And so I let the coaching fade. It will never go away entirely. Right. You can still utilize all those tools that you learned. They're still in your toolbox. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. I'm sure it benefits coming out through your group therapy and your individual therapy that you do with your clients. I'm sure all of that is part of who you are. For sure. And I'm I'm so grateful for that. And and like you said, it's not one or the other. It's kind of like um, picking and choosing and determining when something fits for a particular client. So I would never withhold my coaching positive psychology um, skills or, or the, the tools that are available from that approach if somebody would benefit. But it's been kind of circuitous because somatic therapy um, really started to teach me about how the nervous system works and how my personal nervous system works. I I had personally, I consider myself to have been quite frozen for many, many, many years based on various challenges and barriers that I faced in my life. And so one thing that um, happened for me is I, I started to thaw and I started to see that somatic work was for me a missing link for healing that without my clients understanding their nervous system and experiencing on a deeper level what their nervous system was telling them the whole idea of regulation versus dysregulation you know all of those things i I didn't learn any of that in grad school nothing wrong with that because back in 1990 we didn't learn about all of that but in you know, 2005. And and since that time, it's been such an integral part of how I conceptualize things and how I work with my clients. So training in somatic therapy, 
as you mentioned, was definitely a turning point. And do you call it a U-turn, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to say a U-turn, although if we think about our nervous system as something that we're born with yeah. and intact, in a sense, I guess we are making a U-turn back to restoring the wisdom mm -hmm. I'm taking this from Peter Levine, but restoring the wisdom. He doesn't of, mind. Yeah, not, he wouldn't. <laughs> of, of the nervous system, it's really our birthright. Yeah. And, and so even though I didn't get that particular class in grad school because it wasn't offered, I knew by, by seeing some of my favorite colleagues expand and learn and, and, mm -hmm. and understand themselves better, that it was something that I wanted as well. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, how you use that somatic therapy in com combination with your traditional talk therapy. Sure. Just like everything, it's not one or the other. It's not a cookie cutter approach to any of this. My clients let me know what, what they feel ready for. And some clients will call me specifically looking for a brain spotter, mm -hmm. right? Or what we call a brain, a brain spotting therapist, right? Um, brain spotter sounds kind of odd. <laughs> yeah. But but the, the idea of someone already having that awareness is really exciting to me. Because again, this was not something that people in the 90s really knew about. And so when they call me saying, I I'm needing a brain spotting therapist, I'm wanting to learn about my nervous system, I went through some awful stuff as a kid, and I really want to work on it in this way, fantastic. But generally speaking, I don't do brain spotting all by itself, right? Most of the time, it's in conjunction with some kind of traditional talk therapy, and the only exception would be if somebody is seeing somebody specifically for talk therapy and that therapy does not do somatic work, they may refer their client maybe for half a dozen sessions specifically for uh, somatic experiencing or brain spotting or both. So I, I, I say that um, just as in brain spotting, we talk about being at the tail of the comet, mm -hmm. that the client's nervous system is the head of the comet and we're the tail of the comet. It's the same thing with therapy in general. I'm, I'm always following my, my client. I may suggest things, but they're going to let me know what, what they're ready for. And I'm, I, I never, um, to the best of my ability, go beyond that. I, I also just want to mention some of the mentors that I ran into along the way. When I did the somatic experiencing training, uh, one of my mentors was actually a local person here in Los Angeles named Larry Heller. And Larry Heller um, wrote a book um, actually many years ago with his ex-wife called Crash Course, which is about uh, getting into car accidents and how to restore the equilibrium of the nervous system after an accident. It's one of the best written books. It's actually, even though it's about car accidents, it really covers the gamut of what it means to regulate the nervous system. So I, I highly recommend Crash Course. Okay. And then Larry went on to 
develop his own training called NARM, which is neuroaffective um, neuro regulation model. I think I'm missing the R. But anyway, NARM was something that Larry did as a spinoff to SE. And, and then in the brain spotting world, um, Pi Fry, I love Pi's name. That's her real name. Pi Fry out of Boulder, Colorado, and uh, Rod, Robbie Abels out of Sydney, Australia, are, are both super, super talented brain spotting therapists and brain spotting teachers. And of course, David Grand, who founded brain spotting, is also a, a master at what he does. And he wrote a book called Brain Spotting. <laughs> And um, by the way, I don't know if you've seen it, Sue, but it's actually a, a very easy book. I read it on the plane from Los Angeles to Philadelphia. Oh, okay. And I'm not a, a fast reader, mm -hmm. but it's an easy read. Oh, I'll have to get a copy of it. Yeah, yeah. For, for clients, uh, for yourself, yeah. uh, for colleagues. I, I really appreciate that book quite a bit. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about group therapy. That's always been a big part of your practice. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come to be? And how do groups fit into your practice today during these times? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. This is an interesting story because group therapy actually came into my life through my father. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to say your aunt. So, Oh, actually, <laughs> my, my Aunt Ruth as well which is my dad's sister. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's true. I had never thought of that. Hmm. So my, my dad joined a, a men's therapy group in Philadelphia back in probably the early 80s or late 70s. He was in the group. It was a weekly process group, and he was in the group weekly for many years. I want to say five, six, seven years, something like that. <clears throat> and it was at a time when my parents were not getting along and it became a real sanctuary for him. And I didn't know exactly what those men were doing every week, but my dad was changing. You know, he wasn't mm -hmm. the same. He, I could tell that he was feeling lighter, that he was feeling more hopeful. And eventually, and this was a necessary step for him, he, he went um, separated from my mother and uh, eventually they divorced and my father got remarried and established a new life for himself. And although it was a painful time for the family, it was really liberating and beautiful to watch my father find his voice in that way. And I didn't know this at the time, but the men in the group were a mix of straight men and gay men in Center City, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And he just felt so grateful for his experience there. Fast forward in 1992, when I joined uh, the private practice group that I was in, the two women supervisors that I had wanted me to start a men's process group. This was not my idea, but I thought, okay, a little income, a little clinical experience, why not? And sure enough, it was a men's group that was mixed, meaning gay and straight. And it was, in a sense, ironically patterned after the, the group that my, my father had. 
So I was lucky because um, Cindy and Jody, who were my supervisors at the time, really had a tight ship in their practice. And I felt so um, contained and supported. And I, I ran several groups, actually, three groups over eight years, um, long running weekly uh, process groups. And that was back then. And, and I, when I left their practice, I, I left the groups. But then I started my own groups in my practice. And, and to fast forward to today, I, I have three groups. I have a co-ed group. I have two men's groups. And I will be starting a consultation group, which I used to have, um, but it's on hiatus. Mm -hmm. And what's been so exciting about that, and this is the part that I am super grateful for, is sometimes people feel like in private practice they're lone rangers. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that there's so many people that want to help out there. So I've been involved in lots of group trainings, both locally here in Los Angeles and nationally through the National Group Psychotherapy Association, not to mention consulting with various, what I consider master group therapists who know more than me, mm -hmm. even though I've been doing this 30 years now. <laughs> And so it's it's really exciting to me because I always feel like I'm on a growing edge. I never feel bored. I feel like I'm always on my toes. And um, I feel like it's such a hugely beneficial experience for my clients. So it's it's something that all around we benefit from. And there's a, I know you, you have a few group therapy groups that, you write about like G Paula, that's a big one out here. Is that a national group or? Group Psychotherapy Association of Los Angeles is an affiliate of the national organization, which is AGPA or the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Oh. Uh, sorry, Group Psychotherapy Association. Yes. All these letters, it's like uh, tongue twisters. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so Japala is an affiliate of AGPA. And then before Japala, um, we had a local affiliate called the Los Angeles Group Psychotherapy Society, which merged with the Group Psychotherapy Association of Southern California. Wow, okay. So Japala is actually a, a newer organization that was put together from two existing group therapy organizations that had both been around for many, many decades. But it was time to put them together, and it's it's it it was a little bumpy at first, but it's been a really important marriage to have everyone under one roof. Through the years, you've had many um, supervise you supervised many associates in your practice, so fifteen years of that. How was that for you? Was it like all interns or? Yeah, it, it's it's. I use the term associates because nowadays that's the term that has been given to us for anybody who's um, finished grad school but not quite licensed. Mm -hmm. And we used to call them interns, but that was too confusing. And no, no, it's 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 like the semantics of of the the therapy world. So it's kind of surreal because. I was given so much by my supervisors, you know, specifically um, 
Cindy Bustow and Jody Frank at West Coast Counseling Center, where I stayed for eight years. A lot of people will will get their license and just take off and do their thing. And I wasn't ready. I was I was super young, as we talked about. I was a child prodigy. I was a, a toddler when I finished grad school. So I, I still was learning how to walk. I needed a little more incubation. And so Cindy and Jody really held a space for me. And I feel like, you know, I have been able to give back what what I've been given. And it gets me a little bit emotional because I, I feel so blessed to have had so many mentors in my life who have filled me with their wisdom and their love and their clinical knowledge. And, and so when I started with my very first associate, um, who was actually on our podcast recently, mm-hmm. Buck Dodson. Yeah. I, he was the first? He was the first. Oh, okay. I, didn't realize, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, yeah. So Buck was an SC. He came from the other school, USC. Um, but he was terrific. And I was very lucky to have that experience because we never know how that match is going to be. And, you know, to be honest, you know, through the 15 years of supervising, I've had a lot of really wonderful experiences and I've had a few experiences that didn't turn out so well. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's part of life. But I think overall, what I'm so aware of is that I have something to share that is really something that I've been able to absorb and and metabolize and and make my own. And so as a supervisor, I was able to find my voice and to offer something that was given to me, but also something that was uniquely me, right? I, I didn't have to emulate anybody else. I just like with anything, had to find my own rhythm. And so what what I'm aware of when, when I think about my associates is they were truly my teachers. They, I believe, for the most part, you know, had a, a, a mutually um, fulfilling kind of experience. And, and that many of them are friends to this day right many of them are in my life and 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 still live you know here locally and so it's 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 a joy that they get to be a part of my larger community so if you were to give one piece of advice to a new therapist what would that be so this advice that i am going to share is really something that i've learned through trial and error and in the 12-step program, we have a, a expression, take what you like and leave the rest. So this is just my opinion. But I have found, I have found that for me, therapy, my own therapy, ongoing consultation, and ongoing trainings are the trifecta of, of really having a robust clinical experience. And not just therapy consultation trainings, because that sounds a little dry in a way, but but they're, 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 each of them are actually very fertile ground in so many ways. But nowadays, I do my very, very best to have fun. 
I do my best. I'm, I'm still working on it, as you know, Sue. But I, but one thing I, I worked on with um, Sam, because Sam Foster, my coach, is I, I try and bring things into my life that are about ease, are about love, and are about fun. And that, that's almost like a litmus test. If I'm able to bring ease, love, and fun into everything that I do, personally and professionally, I'm doing pretty damn well. But, you know, we fall short. Sometimes that's okay. But we also, I know it, it's more of an aspiration that I hold. I actually have a post-it on, above my computer so that I can refer to it at times and remind myself. So how is the field of sex addiction changed in this time from when you started oh yeah yeah that that's a whole separate <laughs> podcast okay but well, I'll, I'll just i'll share some highlights we've done 50 of them so <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true we'll, we'll we'll have to uh put that on our our schedule um well again i'm just talking from my own perspective but back in the early 90s so much focus was on the problem and on getting sexually sober, meaning how do we stop the compulsive sexual behaviors, right? And and so there was a lot of attention on sort of the cognitive behavioral approach to curbing those behaviors. And there wasn't a whole lot of talk about trauma and how trauma intersects with addiction in general or compulsive sex. So nowadays, what we know and the way I look at it is that I look through the lens of brokenheartedness. I look through the lens of trauma. I look through the lens of attachment. And this was not part of my dialogue back then. And, and so things are shifting. Things are continuing to shift. We've come a long way in 30 years, and I'm sure 30 years from now we'll be having a very different conversation. Even the term sex addiction, which I believe is rather controversial, is not where I lean. I I do believe that compulsive sexual behavior is a really honest description of what's happening. I'm not a believer that it fits neatly into an addiction model or a medical model. So again, that's another podcast, but but I think what's really amazing in terms of my own learning is that the sexual health model, you know, sex positivity and looking at this kind of compulsive sexual behavior as a as an opportunity to develop the kind of sexual expression that's liberating and fun and expansive is is really where it's at ultimately, right? We don't want to pathologize any of this. And unfortunately, there was a time where it felt more pathologized and some of those echoes are still part of our vernacular. Mm -hmm. But what's really exciting to me is that there's something different evolving and certainly something different evolving within me and um and in in my book of course which is really geared towards a a more compassionate and more um brokenheartedness focused 
approach to how can someone who has struggled and, and suffered with these behaviors, like myself, live a more fulfilling and e easy, loving, fun life. Mm -hmm. Which you do. More and more, <laughs> trying, trying my best. I, and what I just wanted to say lastly about how I look at this in terms of healing is in meetings, I used to say either I'm Andrew and I'm a sex addict or um, I'm Andrew and I'm sexually compulsive. And I, a while ago, decided I don't want to teach my brain that that's who I am. And instead, that I, I'm sim simply Andrew and I'm recovering in this program. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, or I'm Andrew and I'm healing in this program. So that's very different from what I learned back in the early 90s when I went to my first meeting. And so, again, things are evolving and things will be very, very different as, as we look at things 30 years from now. Yeah, all about how you identify with yourself. That's interesting. I never really thought because at AA meetings, I mean, they'll stand up and say their name and that they're an alcoholic. But it's definitely... I like what you said about putting that out there and training your brain almost to believe what it is that you're saying. That's which right. Which we now know is a big part of it. Well, it's 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 the whole field of neuroplasticity. We don't want to encourage those grooves, the well-worn path of I am an alcoholic, I am a sex addict. I really want to remind myself each and every time I'm recovering. You're healing. I like that. I'm healing. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, here we are. Any uh, last thoughts? Oh, well, first of all, I, I'm just aware as we're talking, Sue, that you and I met six years before I finished grad school. So, so we're talking 36 years, which is unbelievable. And at the same time, I was um, also a child prodigy. Well, you were. We just want to remind in, the you were in diapers. <laughs> remind right? the audience, yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, so th that that's very prominent for me as I'm sitting here with you. But what I want to say, and this is where I come from most of the time, is that even after 30 years of being in the field, as much as I know, I really don't know that I do my best to, to, to stay on my growing edge as best I can, to keep learning, to keep growing, to keep open-hearted. Um, but, you know, there's, there's something about the mental health field that, you know, we look back at where we started, like in Freudian days. Right, yes. And nothing wrong with Freud. I mean, he... he he planted some seeds that are still valid today, which is amazing, Freud and Jung. But at this point, we're accelerating in a time of, of learning in warp speed how the brain works, how the nervous system works, and how the healing process can really take shape in, in more effective and, and efficient ways. So I'm... At this point, 30 years in, I'm more, I, I feel like I have both feet in mm -hmm. more than ever. I don't, I don't see myself retiring. I, I see myself as 
continuing to to stay involved in whatever shape and form as things continue to unfold. And so in in our next 36 years together, Sue, we'll keep learning together. And, and uh, I'm just so glad you're in my life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's been quite a journey. But like you said, with everything evolving and changing and so many different studies coming out about the brain, it's definitely keeping us sharp, I think, and, you know, on top of your game. But but also being con- conscious of finding that ease and that love within every single day just keeps you on that positive track of growth. And so that's that's exciting. We'll see what the next 30-plus <laughs> years bring to us. Look forward to sharing it with you. Same here, Sue. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. It was so wonderful sharing this time with my colleague and friend, Sue Merlino, and discussing this really poignant and nostalgic topic related to the last 30 years of my career. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are any topics that you'd like us to discuss in the future, just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.